Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to Shaker Heights, Episode 5, The Crucible. Flitting, floating, falling on the ground. I freeze on children's eyelashes and blur their altered vision of the world. They see a different earth than I, of candy and playgrounds and eternal smiles. I see the truth. Cold, bare trees stripped of life and hard ground. That poem was written by a 16-year-old girl named Lisa Pruitt, not long before she was stabbed 21 times and left for dead behind her boyfriend's house in Shaker Heights, Ohio, in September of 1990. In the hours after her murder, a small group of close friends gathered away from their parents, away from the police, and made up their minds that the person who committed this crime was the weird kid in school, the kid who wore Metallica t-shirts, Kevin Young. One by one, they went to police and pointed the finger at Kevin. And although there was not one piece of evidence linking Kevin to the crime scene, regardless of the fact that he had an alibi, the small-town police were taken by the children's stories, and they decided Kevin Young was their best suspect. A tragedy was playing out in real time just outside of Cleveland, and the name of that tragedy was The Crucible. On September 26, 1990, several detectives from Shaker Heights traveled to Ohio State University, where Kevin Young was beginning his freshman year. Because of what happens next, Kevin Young's life will be quite short. He will never hold down a real job or have any long relationships with women. No family of his own. He will die at the age of 44 in 2017. The detectives have consulted with FBI profilers who explained how they could extract a confession from Kevin. 
Speak to him late at night, they said. Bring lots of candy and soda. Be good cops. Try to make friends with him. Let him feel safe. And so it goes. Wednesday, September 26th, 1990. Deputy Chief Jim Brosius, Detective Sergeant Dan Villardo, Detective Tom Kahansky, Officer Ben Hur, Secretary Ross, and I drove to Ohio State University. We arrived in Columbus about 6 p.m. and met with Captain John Petrie and Detective Jim Younger of the Ohio State University Police Department. Also present were Detective Sergeant Tim Reed and Detective Tim Ward, who had gone to Columbus earlier in the day. The campus police assigned one of their officers to watch the dormitory to let us know when Kevin Young came in. We planned to make contact with Kevin about 8 p.m. We then went to the Ramada Inn to get settled and have dinner. As of about 8 p.m., the Columbus police had not located Kevin. One of their officers called the phone in Kevin's room, asked for Kevin, and was told he was not in. This officer then set up surveillance on Kevin's room. About 9 p.m., we decided to return to the police department. Upon our arrival, Detective Younger explained that one of his undercover officers has just located Kevin Young. He explained that this officer was dressed as a maintenance man and was cleaning a trash room that gave him a direct view of Kevin Young's dorm room. This officer had just reported that Kevin had left his room, gone down the stairs, and returned with a pop. He added that Kevin was wearing a blue Woodbury Run t-shirt. I followed Detective Younger to the dormitory. Rob House is one of the dormitories in Morrill Tower, located on the campus at Ohio State University. Detective Younger and I entered the third, or the main, floor. This is the only entrance and is staffed by students who provide security and limited access to the building. Detective Younger identified himself as campus police, and we went up the elevator to the fifth floor. There we met with the campus police officer who had seen Kevin Young. He told us that Kevin's roommate and a girl had just left, but that Kevin was in the room. The door to the quad dorm room, number 550, was open, as was the door to Kevin's room, which was 554. The open hallway door entered into a small living room type area. To the rear of this area were four doors, each leading to a dorm room shared by two students. Detective Younger entered the quad dorm room through the open door and knocked on the doorway to Kevin's room. I waited outside in the hall, where I could both see and hear Detective Younger. Detective Younger displayed his badge, identified himself as a campus police officer, and told Kevin that someone was here to talk to him. Kevin said to ask him in, and Detective Younger said it was private and suggested they step out in the hall and away from his roommates. It should be noted that we had selected the hallway because the room to the other quad dorm rooms were all closed. No one was in the hallway, and Kevin's other roommates were in their rooms with their doors open. Kevin said he needed to get off the phone. Kevin Young and Detective Younger then walked into the hallway. I introduced myself as Tom Gray from the Shaker Heights Police Department. As I said, Shaker Heights Police Department, Kevin said the words with me. Kevin nervously said he had been expecting to hear from us. I told Kevin that I had been interviewing a lot of people who had information about Lisa Pruitt. I added that Rich Mullaney and Jim Brosius had told me that during his first interview, he had offered to come in whenever necessary to help us with the case. I told him that since I needed his help, 
I thought it made more sense for me to come to Columbus. Kevin invited us into his room. I told him that I thought it was private and best be done away from his roommates. I added that I had asked Detective Younger to get me into the building because that would attract far less attention than the Shaker Heights police. I went on to tell Kevin that we could use a room at the campus police department and he appeared to get very nervous. I then told him I was staying at the Ramada Inn about five minutes from campus and that we could use my room. Kevin agreed and said he just needed to get some shoes and call home. He dialed the phone that put it down, got his shoes, and asked if he could call later. I told him he could call home whenever he wanted. Detective Younger, Kevin Young, and I walked towards the elevator. Kevin said that the stairs were faster, so we walked down the stairs. Detective Younger got into his auto, and we went on to other duties. Kevin and I got into 6782, an unmarked Shaker Heights police cruiser. During the drive, Kevin and I did not talk about the case. Instead, we discussed college life, dormitory life, and classes. He mentioned that he was glad to be at school and that it was an opportunity to begin a new life. He explained that he had not decided on a major, but was interested in business. He added that his real interest was in economics, and we talked a little about economics, the Adam Smith Foundation he started in high school, and Mr. Fabrizio, his high school economics teacher. We discussed the adjustment to college classes. Kevin said it was an easy transition because what he was doing in college was a review of what he did in high school. He said he tested out of enough credits that he will be a sophomore mid-year. He also talked about the honors program at Ohio State that he is currently enrolled in. Kevin and I arrived at the motel about 9.45 p.m. We parked by door number two and took the elevator to the fifth floor. Room 520 was around the corner to the right as we exited the elevator. As we entered the room, Kevin remarked that it was a nice room. He mentioned calling home and asked if he could wait until after we finished. I told him he could call when he wanted and offered to let the city of Shaker Heights pay for the call. I suggested he have a seat and make himself comfortable. He sat in the seat on the couch nearest the window. As I sat on the other end of the couch, there was a loud noise, like a helicopter from outside. Kevin asked if we could close the windows. I got up closed both sliding doors, and turned the air conditioner on low. I began by explaining to Kevin that I spent the last two weeks talking to people and gathering as much information as possible in an attempt to figure out what happened to Lisa. I told Kevin that I needed some insight from him in addition to just discussing his involvement. Kevin said he was eager to cooperate in any way that he could. I told Kevin that this trip to Columbus was important to me. I explained that we were under pressure from the media and there were some loose ends and questions I had about his involvement with the case. Kevin responded with a few comments about how bad the television stations are and how bad he felt about what they did to Dan. He added that he would like to resolve this before the media gets a hold of the story. Kevin asked how long we would be and I told him I wasn't sure. I explained to Kevin that since I came to him for help, he could decide when he was ready to stop talking and I would take him back to his dormitory. He mentioned that he had an 8 o'clock class, but added that he was a night person and we could take our time. We discussed his class schedule and the classes he was taking. I offered Kevin a pop and he chose a Coke from the can. Whoops. I offered, I offered Kevin a pop and he chose a Coke from the can, the only way I drink it. I then reminded Kevin that I was a police officer and that I was investigating a, cr- a crime. <clears throat> I then reminded Kevin that I was a police officer and that I was investigating a crime in which he was still a suspect. 
Kevin said that Detective Mullaney had explained all that to him. I told him that he had a right to remain silent and didn't have to talk to me. Kevin said he wanted to help. I told him that we could stop or take a break whenever he wanted. He said he knew that. As I started to explain that he could talk to an attorney, Kevin interrupted me and said that he understood his rights. He explained that Detective Mullaney had explained all his rights and that he signed a paper that he understood. I asked Kevin to tell me what he thought about the incident. Kevin replied that, as he told Detective Mullaney, he was afraid that Tex, Ken Workman, had done it. And what scared him even more was that Tex might have done it for him, Kevin. Kevin went on to explain that he didn't know how he could live with the guilt if Tex had done it for him. I asked Kevin why Tex would do it for him. And Kevin replied that he, Kevin, had been at Arabica on Thursday when Tex came in. Kevin said he remembers that at the time he was sitting alone at a table and was real upset about a good friend of his that had been sent to the Middle East. Kevin said he remembers Tex coming in, sitting at a table with him, and saying something about going over to Dan Dreifert's and that Lisa was coming over. He remembers that Tex said something about hating to be around when Dan and Lisa are together. I then asked Kevin why he thought Tex would do this. Kevin replied that Tex knew that he, Kevin, had a crush on Lisa for a long time, even though Kevin insisted the crush was over. Kevin added that Tex was also worried about having an alibi for Thursday night. Kevin explained that he was feeling extreme guilt, even thinking about the possibility that Tex might have done this for him. I asked Kevin who he was friends with that went to the Middle East and Kevin said it was Emmanuel Robinson. He then went on to explain that Manny was not really a close friend, just someone he went to high school with. Kevin added that he really didn't even know if Manny was there, but that he had heard that from other friends. I asked Kevin if Manny went into the service right after high school. He explained that Manny and he had just graduated together and that he didn't know Manny very well. Kevin added that he only spoken to Manny a couple of times throughout high school. Kevin said it just scared him that a kid his age was going to come back dead from the Middle East. Kevin went on to talk about the draft and how, because of his January birthday, he would be one of the first kids drafted. He explained that they were going to start the draft next year by drafting 19-year-old kids. I asked Kevin what he thought about the draft, and he said he didn't really think that they would do it. Kevin then went on to add that he thought the draft was unfair since they spent all that money all those years on a volunteer army. Kevin added those volunteers and reserves knew their risks when signed up and that they should not need a draft. Kevin paused as if in deep thought and I told him I remembered worrying about the draft in high school and that they stopped the draft the year I graduated. I then asked Kevin if he was worried about the draft and he said not really. He did not really think they would have a draft. He then began to talk about settling it through economic means, free markets, and why we were in the middle. He went on to explain that he remembers having long arguments, really discussions, with students and teachers at Shaker High School on topics like this. When Kevin was done explaining his views on the issues, I asked him if he enjoyed thinking and talking about things in theoretical kinds of terms. Kevin said yes. He, rem- he remembers... <clears throat> Kevin said yes. He remembers doing that a lot in economics. And I said, with Mr. Fabrizio. And he said, oh, you know him? He's a different sort of guy, but we used to have a lot of long talks about economics, world politics, and anything. 
Kevin added that his own views were kind of conservative and had allowed him to have some long discussion with, with some kids at school that had really strong views and that he enjoyed doing that kind of thinking and that kind of mental thought process. I then told him that was what I needed help with. I explained that it would be great help to me in figuring out what happened to Lisa Pruitt. I asked him to put himself in the place of the person who did this to Lisa Pruitt and tell me a little bit about what he thinks happened. Kevin looked at me with a kind of puzzled look and said, just between us? And I said, yeah, just to kind of help me think through the thought process. I began asking Kevin if he thought Lisa was riding her bike or walking when this happened. Looking at me, but without constant eye contact, he said that he thought she was riding her bike and that the person grabbed her off her bike and that the bike then rolled into the bushes. I asked him to go on and Kevin thought for a minute and then turned and looked out the sliding door window and began to explain that the person who did this really didn't plan on it to happen and he didn't really think about it ahead of time. That he was just walking around that night and kind of wandering and saw Lisa. And when these two people got close, something snapped. Something snapped and this anger came out that he could not control. He knocked Lisa off her bike and grabbed her. And something happened. And she was stabbed with a knife. And she was stabbed and she died so fast that he got scared. He did not want that to happen. And he started acting frantic and crazy and running around and doing things real quick because he was scared. Kevin paused and I asked what happened next and he looked at me and said that he ran from there. Kevin added that he was sure that he will never kill again and that he was sorry that Lisa died. Kevin said that he probably has a new life away from there. Kevin thought for a moment then repeated that he got out of there. Kevin added that he was sure that this person will never kill again and that this person was so scared when Lisa died that he will never kill again. I told Kevin that I was afraid that something might snap again and that this person might hurt someone. Kevin said he was sure the person wouldn't because the person had gone on to another life and things were better and this could never happen again. I asked Kevin to describe what he thought happened to Lisa. He said she was stabbed. And then he added, he heard on the news that she had been stabbed. I asked him to explain in greater detail, and he said that he thought she was stabbed from the front. Kevin said that he just walked up to her and stabbed her once, twice, maybe more, because there was a lot of anger going on. Kevin asked to use the bathroom and in fact got stuck in there due to a sticky door. We joked about it, and he decided that next time he wouldn't close the door completely. He also got another pop about this time. After a couple minutes stretch, I asked Kevin how well he knew the area where this had happened. He told me that he often walks around at night when he can't sleep, but that he usually doesn't go to Lee Road. He added that most of the time, he just walks near her house. He added that, <clears throat> he added that most of the time, he just walks near his house or goes across the street and sits in the stadium at the high school. He explained that he often doesn't sleep well and that he uses the time to think things out for himself. I asked Kevin what kind of things he thinks about and he said that over the years he has had a lot of problems with dealing with kids at Shaker and that he often needed time to think things out. Kevin said that happened when he would say or do something to others that bothered him. He mentioned dealing with girls specifically but added that things were better now that he had his new life at college. 
I then asked Kevin to describe the area, and he said there was a sidewalk and some trees, but he didn't remember it in much detail. I asked him to try to remember what he could about the area, to think in terms of the person who did this, and to think what he would do with the knife. Kevin said that he would get rid of it. Only an idiot would keep the knife. I asked how he would get rid of it, and Kevin real quickly replied, that would be easy. There will be a lot of sewers around, and if you throw it hard enough, no one will ever find it. Still thinking in terms of the person who did this, I asked Kevin where this scared person would go to wash blood off his hands or to change clothes. He looked right at me and said that the way Lisa was stabbed, this person didn't get any blood on him and didn't get any blood on their clothes, and that he didn't know where they would go if they did. I asked him if he was familiar with the lakes and parks in the area, and he again said that he did not know where this person would go to wash or change. I then asked Kevin to tell me how this person felt and how Lisa felt before, during, and after. Kevin thought for a minute and said he didn't feel anything before because he was just walking around and didn't know it was going to happen. Kevin said he then felt scared and angry because he couldn't stop what was happening to Lisa. I asked Kevin how this person felt afterwards. He paused and said, guilty. He added he thought the person felt a lot of guilt. He then looked right at me and quickly added that he thought this person would feel guilty because he, Kevin, always made himself feel guilty about things he couldn't control. Kevin went on to explain that he felt a lot of guilt about Lisa's death and that he felt he should have been there to stop this person, even though he knows, logically, that he shouldn't feel that way. I asked Kevin how he thought Lisa felt. He thought for a minute, looked out the window and said Lisa knew him and that she felt surprised and that she looked real scared when she realized what was happening. I asked Kevin what this person might have said to Lisa And he said that he didn't think this person said anything to Lisa. We then talked about the possibility that the motive was robbery or rape. He paused, leaned back on the couch and said that he didn't think Lisa had anything to steal. That he didn't think that this person wanted to rape her. That it was anger or something snapping. And that he didn't think the person was a criminal. I asked Kevin if he thought this person heard Lisa screaming. And he looked right at me and said, of course he would. He added that he is so close that the screams would be like yelling in your ear right now. We then talked a little bit about what happens to people under stress. I told him that there are policemen involved in shootings that don't remember hearing the shots. He simply said he didn't believe it. We then talked a little bit about how people believe different things. He mentioned long arguments with other students over beliefs and added that he sometimes expressed an extreme view to get people to argue. We talked a little about crimes and how different people have different views on what should happen to people that commit crimes. I then asked Kevin what he thought should happen to the person who did this to Lisa. Kevin had been very relaxed. He sat right up, looked me right in the eyes, spoke slowly and deliberately and said that the person that did this should be electrocuted, should hang, or should at least spend his life in prison. He paused then looking away to the center of the room, adding that if he is under 21 years old, he should be treated like a juvenile because you don't have any real rights up until you're 21 years old anyways, and that this person needed help 
this person needed guidance and that I should understand that the person didn't really mean to do this. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, 
Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I told Kevin that that was exactly why I came to Columbus, that we shared concerns about the person who did this, that I agreed with him, that I thought Lisa knew the person who did this, that I felt that during our investigation, we had interviewed the person who did this during our investigation. I explained to him that I felt that at some time I would be interviewing this person and that in order to help this person, I needed to get through to him, that I was from our juvenile unit and was used to helping kids get help that the reason I was involved in all the interviews was that I had convinced my boss that this was a kid who needed help and who was not a criminal. I told Kevin that time was running out as our detectives put together a case to send the criminal to jail. I asked for advice on how to convince this person that I understood that he needed help and that the only chance I had of convincing others was for this person to trust me. I explained that someone has to present the case to the prosecutor and that how the case is presented determines what the person is charged with. I added that I viewed myself as a neutral outsider in the judicial process whose duty it was to gather facts and put pieces together and present it to a prosecutor. I explained that if the facts showed evidence of a cold-blooded killing, then I would be forced to present those facts. But if the facts showed that someone needed help, then I would present those facts. I told Kevin that my fear was that the person needed help and I would not be able to get through to him. I asked Kevin for his help and asked if he thought that I could get through to this person and told him that I valued his opinion because I thought this person was one of his group of friends. Kevin told me he thought that I could get through to this person, but that it would not be easy because it would be very difficult for this person to admit what he had done. I then asked Kevin how I could get through to this person. Kevin told me that I would have to meet again and again and again with this person and that I would have to push them real hard and get them real emotional and force them to want to talk about what happened. He added that he thought it would really be in the best interest of the person involved if I kept doing that to everybody 
until I got to the person so that he could admit what he did and get the help that he needed. I talked to Kevin about how important this trip down here was to me. I told him that after interviewing people most of the day, I decided that I had to talk to him and that it couldn't wait. I explained to Kevin that many people, including my boss, believed that Kevin had been involved in what happened to Lisa. I told Kevin that I needed his help to explain this to my boss. I asked Kevin to help me explain, and I told Kevin that I needed help from him to explain his involvement to my boss. Kevin became very defensive and said in a strong voice, quote, I didn't do it. I then asked Kevin who he thought did do it, and he said he was very scared for Tex and that he thought Tex killed Lisa. I asked if he thought Tex was capable, and he said that Tex had been at his house Friday morning and that Tex had threatened to kill Dan Dreifert because he thought Dan Dreifert did it. We then talked about whether Kevin believed that Tex really thought Dan Dreifert did it and the conflict between that and Kevin thinking that Tex did it. Kevin finally said he did not really think Tex did it, but was not sure who else could have done it. I told Kevin I had a lot of unanswered questions and asked him what he would say if I told him that someone had seen him out of his house that night. Kevin quickly replied that no one saw me out of my house. Then he added, it was too dark out there for anyone to see me. He went on to explain that as he had explained to Detective Mullaney, he went to bed, that he woke up and was unable to sleep, and that he just got up and walked around the house. He added that he had gotten a sharp pain while lying in bed about 12.30 a.m. He explained that this made him feel extremely guilty because he felt he should have realized that something was going on, that he should have been out there to do something about it, but that he stayed in his house. He also said that he had talked to his next-door neighbor and that his next-door neighbor had had the same pain, the same time of the night, and that he thought that was kind of eerie because he, quote, thinks it was right about the time that somebody was doing this to Lisa Pruitt. I told Kevin I was thinking about loose ends again and asked if there was any reason he might find his fingerprints on Lisa's jeans. Kevin got very defensive, said his fingerprints are not on Lisa's jeans, and insisted that I take his fingerprints to compare it with any fingerprints on Lisa's jeans. I explained to Kevin that a lot of evidence such as that was still being examined, and until such time as we had fingerprints to compare something to, we would not be collecting fingerprint cards from any of the suspects involved. I explained that his answers meant more now, before we got the evidence back. I then told Kevin I wanted to think back to his description of what happened to Lisa. I asked Kevin if he was familiar enough with the area that he could draw me a sketch of the area. He explained that he often walks at night, but that he doesn't go toward Lee Road. I then showed him four pictures of the area. I asked if he could look through the pictures and see if they gave him a better picture of what happened. He looked through the pictures, then went back to the third picture of what was looking northbound at the sidewalk on Lee Road where the bicycle was found. He stared and looked at that picture as we talked for the next few minutes. I told him that I needed the truth from him, that I needed him to be honest with me. He told me that he was being honest and that he did not do anything to Lisa, that he did not do it. I told him I needed his help to resolve this either way. I told Kevin that Detective Mullaney had told me that during the first interview, he had offered to take a polygraph test. Kevin stated that he was still ready to take the polygraph, 
and added that he would like to take it at any time. I explained to Kevin that it was important to do the polygraph when it was good for him. I added that I appreciated his cooperation in the, in the investigation and that I could arrange to set it up for next week, tomorrow, whenever he wanted. Kevin asked how quickly we could get the polygraph operator down because he wanted to take it as quickly as possible. I asked Kevin if he wanted to go back to his dormitory and get some sleep. I also told him that if he wanted, he was welcome to stay here. He said that if we could do it early the next day, he could just stay at the motel. He then thought about the fact that he had 8 o'clock classes and was concerned about missing classes and wanted to get the polygraph over with, but didn't want to interfere with his classes. I told Kevin that I had prepared for the trip and had brought a polygraph operator with me. I explained that it was up to him, but I told Kevin if he wanted to do it tonight, I could go talk to the polygraph operator and make arrangements for the polygraph. I explained that it would take some time for the operator to prepare the questions for the test. Kevin said that he would rather do it now, whatever it took, so that he could prove once and for all that he didn't do anything to Lisa. Kevin appeared to be in a very emotional state. He was smoking heavily, his muscles tensed up, and he had a a lot of intensity in his voice. I tried to just talk more about other things for a while in order to get him more relaxed for the polygraph. We talked about polygraphs and police investigations, then spent time talking about college and about Shaker. At approximately 12.30 in the morning, I asked Kevin if he wanted another pop. He took a break and went to the bathroom. Kevin was out of cigarettes and I got him a fresh pack. I told him I had two options. Either bring the polygraph operator down and we talk in general about the setup or go to the other room and brief the polygraph operator. Kevin said he'd like a few minutes to sit and smoke a cigarette. So I told Kevin I'd be back in a few minutes. I met with our officers in room number 516 and explained to our polygraph operator, Tom Kahansky, where I was at in the interview and we discussed key points for the polygraph. Tom Kahansky asked if Kevin was rested enough to take a polygraph. I then returned to talk to Kevin while the polygraph questions were prepared. I asked Kevin if he had ever taken a polygraph before, and he said no. I explained to him that he needed to be rested and calm and prepared to take the polygraph. We talked about the late hour, and I again offered to let him sleep either at the motel or in his dormitory. Kevin said that he felt good, that he felt relaxed, and that he wanted to take the polygraph and get it over with. I told him we had some time until the polygraph operator was ready. We just sat and talked about the adjustment to college. We talked about how easy his classes were and his preparation from high school and said that he was real excited and that he had a whole new chance to get a new life started and was hoping that we would come down and get done with this and he wouldn't have to deal with it anymore because he was really comfortable in his new life that he had started. Kevin also talked at this point in time about his roommate and how somebody at the college must do a really good job of matching roommates because he and his roommate clicked right from the very beginning and he really liked the guy a lot and he had a nice girlfriend. Kevin then mentioned that he had already met a couple girls at Ohio State and how much better things were going at college. He added that just today, a girl had walked up and talked to him in one of his classes without him ever having to talk to her or do anything. And he didn't think about getting her number but he was excited because he would see her in class the next day and would be able to get her number and she would be a new friend to be able to talk to. 
After we talked for a few minutes, there was a knock at the door, and it was Tom Kahansky. I introduced Kevin Young and Tom Kahansky. Tom Kahansky then brought in the polygraph equipment and began setting it up on the table. I talked to Kevin and asked him if there was anything else I could do for him, and he said no. I told him if there were any questions or problems that I'd be in the other room and they could call me. At about 2 a.m., I left Tom Kahansky and Kevin Young in room 520. I went to room 516 to wait for the polygraph to be completed. We again discussed the interview. We were just discussing a number of options, and I contacted Special Agent Jim Wright of the FBI at home. Jim Wright provided direction for the interview, if it should continue, and reminded me that Kevin and I could be getting tired. I decided to focus on the polygraph as a break and use the next session as a new time of talking to Kevin. About 2.45 a.m., when the polygraph test was over, Tom Kahansky left Kevin in room 520 and came to room 516 to discuss the results. He told me that there was slight deception on all but two of the questions. However, he added that Kevin had an extreme high stress heart rate that could be related to the interview or just being tired. Tom Kahansky explained that he had not confronted Kevin with any of the results. I took the notepad with Tom Kahansky's notes and questions on it and went back to room 520 to meet Kevin. Kevin was still seated at the table where Tom Kahansky had conducted the polygraph. I pulled a chair directly in front of Kevin and told him that I was concerned. I explained that he had not done well on the interview, as I had hoped. I explained to him that there were a number of questions for which he showed deception. I told him it was late and asked him if he thought being tired had a lot to do with it. Kevin said he thought that that must be it and that he was sure he was telling the truth. I looked him right in the eyes and asked him if he did it, and once again he replied, I didn't do it. I then reminded Kevin that we both had been up all day and then gave him some options in terms of what he might like to do. I told him that I was down here to learn the truth from him and to help him and that I would do whatever he wanted to do. I told him one choice was that I could take him back to his dormitory and, if he wanted, come back next week to see him. A second choice was to take him back to his dormitory and see him again after classes. The third choice was to continue to talk. Kevin said he wanted to continue talking and that he wasn't tired and felt that he could best help by continuing to discuss the incident. We took a short break. Kevin went to the bathroom and I got him another pop. I then started by talking to Kevin about how important this was for me personally to get through to the person who did this to Lisa and get them the help that they needed. I explained that most of the police department and most of the investigators had kids and that they were only out to solve a crime. Kevin said that he had heard a lot of things about Lucasville Prison and that he had been thinking about that and that it would be really awful for the person who did this to Lisa to have to spend the rest of their life in a place like Lucasville Prison. We then talked in general about the need to punish adults and to help kids. We then reviewed how he heard about what happened to Lisa. He talked about texts coming over to his house, about his mother walking him up, about the fact that his mother knew because she'd gotten a call, but that his mother didn't tell him. Kevin talked about how Tex was real wild and upset about the whole thing. Kevin said he didn't think much about it until he was at Arabica later in the day. I told Kevin I had some concerns about what he said to others about Lisa while he was at Arabica. He said he only knew what Tex told him. I asked him what Tex told him. 
and he said Tex told him that Lisa had been knocked off her bicycle, bludgeoned, and raped. I then confronted Kevin with the information I had that he was insisting that she had been stabbed and not beaten, and that he was insisting that she had not been raped. Kevin denied that he said that, and added that maybe sometime later in the day, he had heard on the news or otherwise that she had been stabbed and that she wasn't raped, and that he remembers at some point hearing that Friday night, and that he figured that must be what the kids were referring to. I again started to focus on Kevin, and I told him that I was scared, and that I thought he was involved, and that I would really hate for something to happen to him, like him going to prison for the rest of his life. I told him that I really urgently needed him to tell me the truth. Kevin began moving in his seat and looked around the room with quick, darting eyes. He then looked at me, relaxed back in the chair, and told me that he was tired and that he needed a break. He offered to sleep on the couch for a couple hours. Kevin said he wanted to get up, talk some more, and then take the polygraph again to prove his innocence once and for all. I discussed my concern that he be rested for the polygraph. Kevin again offered to stay in the motel room and asked me if I would help him in explaining to his teachers if he missed the classes because he had a couple of quizzes coming up. I told him I would help him in any way possible. I asked Kevin if he would rather go back to his dorm room and sleep, and he said he was afraid he would spend the rest of the night explaining this to his roommates. I asked Kevin if it was a normal day and he was up till 4 a.m., the current time, how late he would sleep. He said probably until 10 or 11 a.m., I told Kevin that I would move my bag out of the bedroom, room 520 is a two-room suite, and that there was a large bed and bathroom, and that he could have the suite to himself for the night. I suggested that he just rest and go to sleep and wake up when he was ready to go for the next day. Kevin asked me if he could call his parents, and I said, sure, and offered again to pay for the call. He then thought about the time and said he did not want to worry them by calling at four in the morning and asked if he could call when he got up. I told him, sure. He then went into the bedroom in 520 and closed the door. I straightened up room 520 a little and went to room 516 and advised Deputy Chief Brocious that I was done for the night. I left a note for Kevin to call room 510 if he needed something before I returned. It was 4.45 a.m. and I retired for the night. I got up about 8 a.m. A little before 8.30, the phone rang and it was Kevin. He said he was up and ready to go. I told him I was just taking a shower and asked if he'd had a chance to take a shower. He said no, but he would love to. I told him there were towels, soap, shampoo, and everything in the bathroom suite, and it was paid for, and he might as well use it, and to make himself comfortable, and I would be down shortly. I got dressed and went down to room 520 as Kevin was coming out of the back room. He told me he was ready to go, and he felt good after the shower. I asked him if he would like to start with some breakfast and he said that that sounded like a good idea. There was a complimentary paper from the motel. I gave him the paper and asked if he wanted to look at it. I asked him again if he still wanted to take the polygraph. He said yes, he really needed to prove that he was innocent. I told him, I thought he'd be more relaxed if Tom Kahansky went out to breakfast with us. He agreed. I explained that Tom Kahansky had gotten up early and gone for a walk. I left Kevin reading the paper for about 20 minutes until I located Tom. I then returned to Kevin's room and told him that Tom Kahansky would be along in a couple minutes. Kevin and I discussed the Middle East and a couple other current news items until Tom Kahansky knocked on the door. We asked Kevin where he wanted to eat and he said anything was fine. 
As we walked out of the room door, Kevin remembered that he had forgotten to call home. I started to walk back into the room and said I would charge the call to the city. Kevin thought for a minute, then said no. He'd rather wait until after the polygraph, when it was all over. Kevin Young, Tom Kahansky, and I then walked to the area of the front desk where the motel restaurant was located, and we debated between eating there or at the Bob Evans next door. Kevin said he liked Bob Evans, so we walked next door. Kevin had a breakfast of coffee and orange juice and French toast. We took about an hour to eat breakfast, relax, and talk. Kevin talked a lot about computer games and Dungeons and Dragons. Tom Cahancy expressed an interest in Dungeons and Dragons, and Kevin explained in detail about using the book, being the Dragon Master, and being a player. He said a lot of the kids asked him to be Dragon Master. He added that it was tough to be a player after you have been a Dragon Master because you knew the book. He said that a Dragon Master had to come up with a lot of obstacles when players had been Dragon Masters. Kevin also talked about video games and Nintendo. He was proud of the fact that he had mastered Super Mario 3. He said that it took him like three hours to complete the first time, but that after he played it once, he could do it in about 20 minutes. He said he played Nintendo a lot, but that it was really his brother's game. He jokingly said that he has to get along with his little brother or his brother won't let him play. Kevin said he realized he was a little old for some of these video games, but said that they were a great challenge and a lot of fun. We took our time and walked back to the motel. Tom Kahansky went to prepare for the polygraph, and Kevin and I began just talking about things in general. I was working to have him very relaxed for the test. I asked Kevin if he felt pretty good about taking the polygraph, and he did. We discussed again calling his mother, and he repeated that he wanted to wait until after the polygraph. Kevin asked if we would be done after the polygraph or if we could talk a little, and I said it was up to him. And he asked if I could get some more pop and make sure that we had cigarettes so that we could take some time to talk after the test. He said he already missed his classes and basically the whole day was spent, and if we needed to talk about that, we could. Kevin also said he'd like to talk a while before he took the polygraph. By now it was about 10 a.m., and we talked until about noon. During that time, we discussed the incident again. We talked about how Kevin learned about the incident and who his friends are. I asked who his best friend was, and Kevin mentioned a letter he was writing to John Hilliard. He explained that he was writing the letter, but probably wouldn't send it because he expected to see him in a couple of weeks. He added that in the letter, he told John how well things are going at college. He also said he wrote about his roommate and his roommate's girlfriend. He said he wrote about her PDA, Public Displays of Affection. Kevin added that she didn't really bother him, but that he just kind of jokingly said those kind of things because people expected to hear that from him. We then got to talking about computers. He said he had an Apple computer at home and had just learned to write and print on it, but that was about all. He added that he had to give the computer to his sister, a ninth grader at Shaker, before he left to come down to Columbus. I then asked him when he had come down to Columbus. He said he brought all of his stuff on the 9th of September to try out for band. He said that he changed his mind about band, left his stuff in the dormitory, and went home. I asked him why he changed his mind, and he said it was a lot of things. He said that he was nervous about being away from home, that most of the kids had been down there practicing for two weeks. He added that band also took a lot of time and was only worth two credits. He also said he was never really into marching band, that he enjoyed music, but not marching. He seemed nervous discussing band and changed the subject. He mentioned a couple of girls that had come up to him in classes and talked to him. 
He added that they just came up to him and that he did not have to talk first. He went on to talk about how glad he was to be away from Shaker. He was excited to have a whole new life and was glad to be away from the problems he had in Shaker. He felt the kids in Shaker were tough and related that he had a lot of friends, but that they make him feel like an outcast. I asked if he was referring to the GGC. Kevin laughed and we then talked about the GGC girls and boys and about prom night. He brought up the after prom party and told me that he has a tendency to build up his expectations and that he really felt angry about what the girls did to him. He brought up Arabica and said that he basically hung out there for the summer. I asked him how Dan and Lisa fit in. He described Dan as a best friend of his for a long time and that during the time that Lisa was in town, he and Dan spent a lot of time together. He went on to say that between Lisa being back in town and Dan being in the hospital, that he really hadn't seen Dan much lately. I then asked Kevin what clothes he brought back from Columbus for his last week here. I explained that we did not find any of his clothes when we were at his house. He said all of his clothes were in the clothes chute. I told him the kids all remember him wearing one set of clothes. He said most of the week he wore a skateboarder t-shirt, blue jeans, and his moccasins. He said on the cool nights he wore a blue plaid flannel shirt. He asked if that matched what we knew, and I said basically. I thought for a minute and then asked if he saw Dan the day Dan got out of the hospital. Kevin explained that even though he considered Dan a best friend, that he had not felt it important to try to get in touch with Dan or to talk to him the day that he got out. Kevin said he was aware that everybody at the high school was excited to see Dan and that Lisa and Dan had been around together and that Lisa was very excited to see him. We talked next about Tex, Ken Workman. Kevin was in a very talkative mood during this time period and I was basically listening and letting him talk. Around noon, Kevin said that he felt good, that he was ready to take the polygraph. I left him in room 520. I told him that I had to go to Tom Kahansky's room and talk to him about setting up for the test. At this time, I learned that we had a problem and had to be out of the room by 2 p.m. Jim Brocious had made arrangements for another room if needed. Also, while Kevin was waiting for me in 520, I called Jim Wright from room 516. I discussed my concern that Kevin felt safe here and was prolonging the interview. I felt that Kevin did not want the interview to end. He felt that Kevin felt safe with me. We agreed that we had to confront him and end the interview. Arrangements were also made with Tom Kahansky to run the polygraph and that if it came up clearing Kevin Young of any involvement, that he should discuss that with Kevin and that if it came back with obvious deception, that Tom Kahansky should confront him with the deception and be prepared for the fact that Kevin might look like he's about ready to admit and that at that point, that Tom Kahansky should stop the confrontation and leave the room and let Kevin think for a few minutes until I returned to the room to complete the confrontation. I then went back and talked to Kevin and told him that either we had to be done by 2 p.m. or that we had to move to another room. I gave him the option of taking the test right away or having lunch first while Tom Kahansky changed rooms and set up his equipment in the other room. Kevin thought lunch sounded good and asked if we could go for pizza, specifically Pizza Hut, if there was one around. I went to ask Tom Kahansky to change rooms and Kevin asked me to get some more Coke and cigarettes in case we needed to talk after the polygraph. We again talked about calling home, and Kevin said he wanted to wait until after the polygraph test. I saw Tom Kahansky and returned to the room. Kevin and I then walked to the front desk, asked if there was a pizza hut, and got directions to one nearby on High Street. 
We agreed to split a pizza, and Kevin ordered a medium pepperoni pan pizza. We took our time and again talked about college and college life and being away from home. And he talked about how it was scary. It was basically casual conversation. Kevin kept coming back to talking about his friends from Shaker and how good it felt to be away from Shaker. We returned to the motel about 1.30 p.m. and went to room 421. As we walked there, Kevin said that if the test didn't work well, he would be willing to spend another night. He added that he felt very comfortable talking and felt confident that if we talked long enough, that we would be able to resolve everything. When we got to the room, Tom Kahansky was waiting there for us. Kevin was very relaxed. He asked if he could use the bathroom first because of the large Coke he had for lunch. Kevin went into the bathroom. I met briefly with Tom and told him I thought Kevin was very relaxed and ready for the polygraph. When Kevin came out of the bathroom, he was noticeably more tense than he had just been moments earlier. He was all tensed up and rubbing his hands together nervously. I asked Kevin if he still wanted to take the test, and he said he was ready to go. I wished Kevin good luck and told him I would return after the test. At a few minutes before 3 p.m., when the polygraph test was complete, Tom Kahansky left Kevin by himself in room 421 and came to room 516 to discuss the results. He said that he ran two tests, that he had clear deceptions on most of the questions dealing with Lisa, that he confronted Kevin with a deception, and that Kevin got tears in his eyes but said nothing. Tom Kahansky said he had confronted Kevin directly about his involvement with Lisa, and Kevin again said, I didn't do it. At about 3 p.m., Jim Brocious and I went into the room. Kevin was sitting by the polygraph machine on a chair with a concerned, almost teary look in his eyes. I asked Kevin if he remembered Deputy Chief Brocious, and Kevin said he did. I asked Kevin if he remembered Deputy Chief Brocious, and Kevin said he did. I told Kevin that due to the pressure on this incident, that they had sent Deputy Chief down to Columbus. Deputy Chief Brocious then left the room. I asked Kevin if he minded if I opened the drapes, and he said that that would be great. I sat down directly in front of him, got very close, and told him I was concerned. I sat down directly in front of him, got very close, and told him that I was concerned and a little scared about what happened. He said he knew the machine couldn't lie, but he didn't understand why the machine was doing this to him. I paused for a couple minutes and began to slowly explain to Kevin the situation as I saw it. I told him that if he really was not involved in what happened to Lisa, that things would work out. I then told him I was afraid that he was not telling the truth. I told him I really wanted a chance to help him. I repeated that the person who did this to Lisa needed me both as a friend and as someone to present, objectively, to the prosecutor exactly what happened. I repeated my feeling that this person really needed help, that this person really didn't mean to hurt Lisa, and that this person didn't deserve to spend his life in prison or to be executed. I told Kevin I had a number of concerns about his involvement with Lisa. I told him I wanted to go over them with him, so that he understood why the pressure was on us to resolve his involvement. I told Kevin that I had concerns about how he found out about Lisa and his reaction to her death. I explained that he said Tex told him that Lisa had been pulled off her bike, hit in the head, murdered, and raped. Yet, kids at Arabica told us that by 1.30 in the afternoon that he, Kevin, had been insisting that she had been stabbed and had not been raped. 
I told Kevin that we didn't understand why watching the five o'clock news listing Dan as a suspect made it obvious to everyone that Dan didn't do it. I told Kevin I was worried that he kept saying Tex did it, yet he told us that Tex wanted to kill Dan for doing it. I told Kevin that I was worried that he had made repeated threats against Dan and Lisa. I told Kevin that I was worried about his relationships with girls. I read from his journals, quote, I'm in the popular crowd, but I don't like them. Or, quote, I speak on a lonely Saturday evening. Or, quote, my luck will change for the better in the next few months between high school and college. Each time he asked for, and I showed him, the paper that I was reading from. I told him I thought the affection between Dan and Lisa bothered him. And I read again from his papers, quote, it really pisses me off when I see couples paired off. I am worth absolutely nothing. He replied that that had all changed, and I reminded him what he had said about his roommate's girlfriend's PDA, public display of affection. I told him I had concerns about his fantasies with girls, and again read regarding prom night, quote, it is not a bash. It is three girls and myself, and they are ditching their boyfriends so they can spend the night with me. I asked if he really thought they were ditching their boyfriends on prom night. He continued to look at me, but did not respond. I told him some of his thoughts bothered me like, quote, I will kill all undesirables. I must. I am hated by virtually all my classmates. Males think I'm a loser and psychotic, a scar on the school's mere existence. Females despise me as if I was the ugliest person on this planet, which of course I am. I read the one final thought of his, quote, if I ever lose control of myself, withdraw into an alternative world and let animal instincts take over. I handed Kevin a copy of that passage. That was, <clears throat> I handed Kevin a copy of that passage that was found at his house, paused, then told Kevin that you can't stay in this alternative world, that the truth must come out. I told Kevin that I had enjoyed the time with him, but that it had been a long day and that I had to get back to the real world. I told Kevin that he had to get back to the real world too. I paused for a minute and told Kevin that I felt that he had a number of options. I told him that I felt confident that if he was truthfully not involved, that things would work out. However, I also told him that if he was involved in any way in what happened to Lisa, that he could never escape it. I said I felt that until he shared the truth with someone who could understand him, that there would be something deep down inside him that would never let him get away from this. I told him that until this was resolved, he couldn't go back to Shaker because everybody in Shaker would think of him as being the suspect. I added that he couldn't go back to college because everything in college would now remind him of Lisa. I told him he couldn't go back to anything until he told the truth. I told him he had to clear his conscience and tell the truth. Kevin reacted. He leaned forward. He got real tense. And he looked me right in the eyes with tears welling up in his eyes and deep emotion in his voice. He said he could have told me he did it, spent a couple years in the hospital, then got on with his life. But he said, quote, I've got to tell you the truth. And this is the truth. And if I don't tell you this, I don't know how I could ever live with myself. He paused for a couple minutes. Then slowly he said, I'm scared. I feel suicidal. I have nothing to live for. I feel more suicidal now than I ever have since I was hospitalized two years ago. He said that he, quote, needed to be in the hospital. He said that for the first time in his life, he realized that he really needed help and that he needed to be in the hospital. 
He said he couldn't go anywhere but a hospital. I told him that I thought he ought to call his parents and talk to them about getting in a hospital. He said no. He couldn't call home. He said no. He couldn't call home because his mom wouldn't believe him and she wouldn't let him go into the hospital. He added that he really needed to be in a hospital and away from his parents. He thought for a minute and asked if he could call his doctor. I told him we could. We walked over to the phone. He had a card in his wallet for Dr. Melvin Chavinson. He gave me the number, and I dialed it and charged it to the city credit card. Kevin asked if he could talk to his doctor privately, and I agreed. I started to walk out of the room until Kevin told me he got the answering machine. He left a message on the answering machine at about 4.10 p.m. and said something to the effect of, This is Kevin. I need to talk to you. I'll call you back in a little bit. Kevin and I talked for a little while, and I told him that I thought he should leave a message with a number for the doctor to call. Kevin felt confident his doctor would call during his next break between patients from 4.50 p.m. to 5 p.m., so we left a second message at about 4.20 p.m. While we were waiting, we discussed a number of the points we discussed. I again asked Kevin what he thought should happen to the person that did this to Lisa. He replied that the person should kill himself because he had nothing to live for. And if the person didn't kill himself, then he should be killed. Kevin told me he really had nothing to live for and just needed to sit. He sat on the bed and was silent for a while. He talked a little more about making friends and how hard it was. He said he had a deep pain inside and that it was so deep he couldn't tell me. He added that he wanted to tell me what it was, but that he needed help and he couldn't say it. He then looked at me and said he wasn't even sure of what it was. As of 5.05 p.m., Dr. Chavinson had not called, so I called Shaker PD and got Detective Klima as he was leaving the station. I asked him to go knock on the door of Dr. Chavinson's office, 23360 Chagrin Boulevard, Suite 105. Dr. Chavinson finally called about 5.15. Kevin answered the phone, but asked if he could talk privately. I waited outside the door. After a few minutes, Kevin came to the door. He told me that Dr. Chavinson could make arrangements to get him help in the hospital. However, Dr. Chavinson told him he had to call his parents, something about insurance. Kevin then asked if he could call his dad instead of his mom because his mom wouldn't believe him. Kevin tried but got no answer for his dad. Kevin hesitated and didn't want to call his mom. I told Kevin that I felt he knew what he wanted and if he was strong enough, I was sure his parents would support him. Kevin asked me if I would visit him and help him through this, and I promised I would. I again told him he really needed to call his mom because I couldn't stay with him forever and I couldn't leave him alone. He finally called his mom, and I again stepped outside the room. Kevin came to the door after a minute and asked for a pen and paper. After another minute, he returned to the door with tears in his eyes. He said he didn't know what to do, that his mother didn't want him to talk to me and wanted him to call an attorney. He showed me the paper with the attorney's name and number on it. I told him the decision was his, but suggested that if he wanted his parents' help, that he should follow their advice. Kevin then called the attorney. They talked for a couple minutes. Then Kevin came outside the room and told me that the attorney wanted to talk to me. The attorney asked me where Kevin was, and I told him we were in room 421 of the Ramada Inn on Olentangy River Road. The attorney also asked me not to ask Kevin any more questions. He then spoke to Kevin again. When Kevin got off the phone, he told me he was to meet the attorney out front and that I was not even to walk him out. Kevin, with tears in his eyes, 
asked if this meant I couldn't visit him in the hospital. And I simply told him that I needed to make those arrangements with his parents and attorney. I then walked Kevin to the elevator. He gave me a hug as we waited for the elevator. He went down to the first floor. I went up to the fifth floor and prepared to drive back to Shaker Heights. After the detectives were unable to force a confession from Kevin Young at Ohio State University, they returned to Shaker Heights more determined than ever that they had the right man. They needed a real expert to help them break Kevin the next time they spoke. Enter renowned psychologist Dr. Murray Myron, a professor at Syracuse University. He agrees to consult with them on the case, but first, he has some questions about Dan Dreifer. Yeah, I understand that. And, and, and indeed, that's a very powerful alibi um, that the father indicates that Dan was, in fact, in his room and that they both heard the screams together. Yes, that's, that's very powerful. There is some, I must say that we, we had some difficulty still, however, with Dan's subsequent behavior. He, after they go out to the edge of the property and, and I'll go back into the home, apparently satisfied that the source of the scream has left the area or whatever, and that they can't find anything unusual, apparently Dan re-exits the house to find the bicycle. And then, in fact, without telling his parents, um, calls 911 on his own uh, to report what he believes to be now suspicious circumstances. But then when the parents hear the Pruitt's outside on the lawn, you know, and, and they're distraught. And here are all these police vehicles, the crime scene being established. Uh, Dan goes to bed. Right. Falls asleep uh, while the parents are waiting for the plainclothes detective to come in and interview them, huh? Right. I found that, I, I found that unusual um, and, and somewhat disconcerting. But what we decided here was that Dick and I decided that, well, that's not, that's academic, right? Because it's not Dan that we're going to be interrogating. It's, it's Kevin. And whether or not he's the guy or not, we want to give the full shot to, to use the best psychological coercion we can. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.